Co-host Nathan Radke, and with me today in the bunker are uh, the many electric guitars I've cobbled together out of old Soviet parts. That's because this episode is being recorded in July of 2020, and we spend most of our time hanging out with inanimate objects as we all hunker down during what I'm continuing to call World Quar One. And because my strange old Soviet guitars make such poor conversationalists and subpar electric guitars, if I'm honest. I've had some time recently to dive into another cryptid tale, and this one we decided to do uh, as a bit of a thank you to the people of Wayne, New Jersey, where we have a surprising number of listeners for reasons that none of us quite understand. And what better way to say thank you to the Waniacs than to do an episode on their homegrown monster, the New Jersey Devil. Whenever we do a cryptid episode, we're trying to describe something that has never been proven to exist. It's as if we're trying to look at an absence. So we tend to end up talking instead about the context around the missing cryptids. When I talked about Mothman, I was really talking about Cold War paranoia. When Lee hunted Bigfoot, he ended up catching an examination of the scientific method and the nature of certainty. And when Elena went looking for the Loch Ness Monster, she found instead the manner in which pop culture and eyewitness accounts intertwine and feed off of each other. And today's cryptid hunt isn't any different. On the surface, this is the story of a strange, two-legged, winged, horse-faced creature. But underneath, it's the story of how belief systems interact with each other, how time both maintains and erases history, and the collisions that exist between myth and personal experiences. This is the fourth episode in our three-part Cryptid Hunt series, and I have to say that each of them has been far more interesting than I was expecting. As it turns out, when you go hunting for monsters, you end up learning a lot about humans. And it didn't take too long as I dove into the history of the New Jersey Devil to realize that this story, too, was going to be far stranger and more interesting than I had expected. So, enough preamble, let's chase some monsters together. In particular, we're going to be chasing them in a place called the New Jersey Pine Barrens, or the Pines for short. It's a big area, over a million acres stretching across the state of New Jersey. The pine part of its name comes from the pitch pines that dominate the area. They're a strangely twisted tree. They look uncomfortable, as if they were very slowly writhing in pain. But they recover from fires better than most trees, and because of their odd shapes, they aren't typically used in carpentry, so they resist attempts by both nature and humans to winnow down their numbers. As well, they can also succeed in areas with poor soil, which is important in this area because the Pine Barrens lives up to both halves of its name. The soil there is acidic and sandy, and it doesn't provide a very welcoming place for most plant life. In fact, so poor is the soil in many areas of the Pine Barrens that plants have evolved other methods of getting nutrients. The pitcher plant, for example, forms little bottles of water with its leaves that release aromas that entice insects into them, where they fall into the water and are dissolved by enzymes to feed the plant. The pleasantly named sundew has leaves that look as though they are covered in little tentacles, and when an insect lands on one, the tentacles reach over and grab that insect, trapping it while it slowly suffocates, after which the plant slowly absorbs the dead insect's nutrients. 
In other words, it's an ideal stomping ground for a monster. The plants are carnivorous, the trees are twisted and warped, and the entire place burns down every so often. In fact, once after a large forest fire in the Pine Barrens in 1957, it was claimed that a strange charred body was found that looked inhuman, almost devilish. But before we continue, it's crucial for several reasons to note that the area wasn't always New Jersey, and there were people there long before the colonists showed up in the 1600s, and there were weird creatures allegedly wandering around in the area long before the New Jersey Devil. Before it was New Jersey, the area was Lenopehoking, and was inhabited by the Lenape Nation. When colonists started showing up, the Lenape were a matrilineal and agrarian society, which means that power and leadership was largely guided and passed down through the mothers of the nation, and there were complex systems of agriculture, trade, and resource cultivation. However, by the late 1600s, the diseases and plagues such as measles and smallpox that had been introduced to the area after their first contacts with Europeans had absolutely devastated the local population. The forests of Lanapeho King were filled with supernatural beings, most notably the figure of Mosengwe, who is a sacred medicine spirit that helps keep nature in balance with itself. Mosengwe was often depicted as either a man riding a deer or a winged man-deer who roams the forest helping hunters who maintain a respectful relationship with the land and punishing people who abuse their environment. However, when belief systems interact with each other, some things can get lost in translation. And colonization wasn't just about effacing the indigenous people from their land, but the spirits as well. The colonists who occupied New Jersey were mostly Christian, and there wasn't a place in the Christian pantheon for Masengwa. So to the dualistic Christian belief system of good and evil, a strange supernatural being that wasn't an angel or god must therefore be a devil or a demon. And it's in this collision of cultures and belief systems that we see some of the early groundwork for what would eventually become the Jersey Devil. But a good monster needs a good origin story. And while the New Jersey Devil doesn't get much press until the 20th century, there is a devil stalking the woods of what had now been renamed New Jersey, the Leeds Devil. And the Leeds Devil had a cinematic and demonic beginning that, according to legends, goes a little something like this. In 1735, a woman named Mother Leeds lived in the settlement of Estelville, which was inside the Pine Barrens. According to the story, Mother Leeds was living up to her nickname in grand style by already having 12 children when she found out that she was pregnant with her 13th. Apparently, that 13th kid was the figurative straw that broke the camel's back because Mother Leeds was pretty unhappy about the situation and yelled out, Let this one be a devil! In some versions of the story, Mother Leeds was a witch, and in other versions, she was married to the devil. But in most of the versions, on a dark and stormy night, Mother Leeds gave birth to a normal baby, which then turned into a horrifying monster with wings, a forked tail, hooves, and a goat's head. It then proceeded to kill everyone in the room and fly up the fireplace chimney. And I know what you're thinking. If it killed everyone in the room, how do we know that it flew up the chimney? Nobody was left alive to report what had happened. Excellent question. And the only answer I have for it is that folklore and myth don't tend to stand up well to that kind of scrutiny. For that reason, we should treat stories like this one more as metaphors, rather than as the literal truth. Because the literal truth is, there is no evidence for this witchy Mother Leeds character. But the Leeds family of New Jersey was very real, and diving into some of their history will provide us with a little more insight into the story of the Jersey Devil.
The colonists who showed up on the shores of Turtle Island were almost all Christian, but Christianity is a complex and diverse belief system that has many different branches and divisions. One of the main groups of Christians that were in Lanapehoking were the Quakers, a brand new sect that had just emerged in England under the direction of their leader and founder, George Fox. They were opposed to many of the traditional practices and viewpoints of their society. Uh, for example, Quakers had women ministers, they supported nonviolence, and they were early opponents of the enslavement of other human beings. Fox also encouraged his fellow Quakers to go about town totally naked to demonstrate the folly and absurdity of earthly possessions and wealth. So many of these views, in both senses of the word, were objectionable to the powers that be in England at that time, and the Quakers were persecuted as heretics, particularly by the Puritans, who had a strict and joyless interpretation of religious command. Fleeing this persecution, many Quakers ended up in Lenapehoking, where they discovered to their dismay that they were then persecuted by Puritans again, who had left England after deciding England just wasn't puritanical enough. One of the early Quakers who fled England was a young man by the name of Daniel Leeds, who gets to the Pine Barrens in 1676. He was a leader in his community, but started to irritate the other Quakers when he published an almanac in 1687. For those of you listeners who are under, uh, I don't know, like 80, you might not know what an almanac is. Basically, it was a pre-internet internet, filled with general information about the tides and the phases of the moon, some inspirational quotations, and so on. Leeds was interested in combining his religious belief with some of the more occult belief systems he had come across in his studies, so he also included astrological information about the Zodiac. The whole book was a little too pagan for the likes of the local Quaker community, so some of the civic leaders ordered that all copies of it should be collected and burned, although they did make sure to pay for each copy so the publisher wouldn't be out of pocket. They then brought Daniel Leeds in for a meeting, at which he had to apologize for publishing such an offensive book. However, the apology he gave didn't seem to have been too heartfelt, as he immediately began writing a far more ambitious work titled The Temple of Wisdom, which was Leeds' attempt to combine all of the astrology, philosophy, theology, medicine, and science he had ever come across into one book. Leeds was convinced of the power of education and literacy, and was heavily influenced by Enlightenment thinkers such as Sir Francis Bacon, who had attempted to explain the world using reason and observation. Leeds didn't appear to be trying to attack Christianity, but simply expand it to include these other belief systems, similar to what Isaac Newton was doing at pretty much the exact same time. Again, the Quaker leaders rounded up this new book, and as they were seen to be mystical and devilish, had them destroyed as well. At this point, Leeds was really starting to build up a reputation as a troublemaker and a blasphemer, and in 1693 he wrote another, much longer almanac, in which he took the bold Copernican position that the Earth wasn't the center of the universe, and instead was part of a solar system in which the Earth orbited the Sun along with the other planets. At this point he had rejected the Quaker community, and had built up an impressive feud with the Quaker leaders. Had they all been East Coast and West Coast rappers in the 1990s, it would have set the stage for an absolutely epic rap battle. But since this was 300 years too early for that, it instead took the form of a pamphlet war, in which both sides printed up angry pamphlets accusing and attacking the other side. Leeds published a pamphlet titled, The Trumpet Sounded Out of the Wilderness of America, which may serve as a warning to the government and people of England to beware of Quakerism which I would say had the longest and most awkward title of anything I have ever come across, 
if one of the Quakers by the name of Caleb Pusey hadn't responded with a pamphlet titled, Satan's Harbinger Encountered, His False News of a Trumpet Detected, His Crooked Ways in the Wilderness Laid Open to the View of the Imperial and Judicious, being something by way of answer to Daniel Leeds, his book entitled News of a Trumpet Sounding in the Wilderness. Now that is an awkward title. Now, Leeds responded to this with news of a strumpet cohabitating in the wilderness, in which he accused the Quakers of conducting orgies, after which Pusey released Daniel Leeds Justly Rebuked, after which Leeds published The Rebuker Rebuked. If this all sounds a bit out of control, it could have actually been much worse. Back in England, a pamphlet war between two men named John Taylor and Henry Walker reached the point where Walker released a pamphlet titled Taylor's physique had purged the devil, which was simply a drawing of John Taylor getting pooped on by the devil in the face. Well, that is an extreme example. Accusing a political enemy of being in league with, or actually being, the devil was a pretty common practice at the time. In addition, it's interesting to see how often the idea of monster was used in political discourse. For example, a 1726 pamphlet titled The Life and Character of a Strange He-Monster was actually an attack on a local politician. A pamphlet from 1754 titled The Monster of Monsters was a criticism of a local alcohol tax. And The Deformity of a Hideous Monster Discovered in the Province of Maine was a discussion of a new property policy. But nobody thought that there was actually an alcohol tax literally roaming the landscape in the shape of a monster. The idea of monster was being used here as a colorful metaphor. However, All of this monstrous discourse is another piece of the puzzle to helping us to understand the origins of the New Jersey Devil. The story of Mother Leeds giving birth to a devil could easily have mutated from the constant stream of attacks calling Daniel Leeds a devil until people forgot what the origin of the metaphor was and started to take it literally as a story of an actual monster. Interestingly, Daniel's son Titan would take after his old man and start publishing his own almanac. He would also take after his old man by getting into brutal flame wars. In Titan's case, it was with rival almanac producer Ben Franklin. That feud became heated enough that in the 1733 edition of Poor Richard's Almanac, Franklin predicted the death of Titan Leeds in October of that same year. When Titan Leeds didn't die, Leeds wrote in his next almanac that Franklin was a fool and a liar after which Franklin claimed that such abusive language was far too coarse to have come from such a gentleman as Titan Leeds, which could only mean that Titan had indeed died, and it was the vile ghost of Titan Leeds that was now publishing the Leeds Almanac. After Titan Leeds actually died in 1738, Franklin got one last shot in by writing and publishing a letter from Titan Leeds' ghost. And again, supernatural and evil forces were associated with the Leeds family. While the Leeds family faded from the public eye after the death of Titan Leeds, the Leeds devil remained in the folklore of the Pine Barrens. There was even a legend that the pirate Captain Kidd, who had spent some time off the New Jersey coast, had buried treasure near Barnegat Bay, and then decapitated one of his men to serve as a ghost guard for the treasure. Now some say that they had seen the headless ghost and the Jersey devil walking together along the shoreline, which is sort of sweet and romantic. In 1870, a New Jersey fisherman claimed he had seen the Jersey Devil hanging out with a mermaid, which is practically a cryptid bonanza. By the beginning of the 20th century, the Leeds family saga had been out of the limelight for a while, and all that was left of the Leeds Devil were a few ghost stories and legends that had been passed down from generation to generation. 
In fact, in his 1903 book, American Myths and Legends, author Charles Montgomery Skinner wrote that the Leeds Devil had, quote, become a dim tradition, end quote. However, like so many predictions and claims made at the turn of that century, Skinner's comments were soon proven to be incorrect, as in 1909 there was a rash of sightings. Starting the week of January 16th, the Jersey Devil terrorized the population of several cities and towns in the American Northeast. In an article in the Trenton Evening Times with the headline, Fly Rival of Leeds Devil Has Jersey People Frightened, and with the subheading, Hoofprints in the snow, whirring noises in the air, and other uncanny manifestations reach Bordentown in Mount Holly after making sensation in lower counties where natives remain indoors after sundown, the writer describes the horror. Residents of Bordentown, Mount Holly, Gloucester, and Woodbury, and many other towns in Burlington and Gloucester counties are greatly excited and mystified over the discovery of curious hoofprints made, it is thought, by some strange animal not as yet classified by scientist or nature faker. The trail of the beast, although no one is known to have seen the creature, leads to the belief that the animal is two-legged, with hoofs like a horse, has wings, and is able to fly, possesses a remarkable form so it may crawl through a hole less than a foot in diameter, and is sufficiently cat-like to walk on fences and over chicken coops that would not bear up a 20-pound weight. Skillman, a little village near here, was the first place to report having seen a strange animal. Since then, the odd tracks have been followed for many miles and cover a strip of county three miles wide. The Philadelphia Inquirer ran a picture of some of the odd tracks under the headline, What is it visits all South Jersey? Judging from the photograph, they were bipedal in nature and looked exactly like the prints that horseshoes would make. People all along the Delaware River were being awakened in the middle of the night by strange noises. Postmaster E.W. Minster looked at his window on January 17th at 2 a.m. to see a creature that he described as having a long neck, wings, long legs, and making a squawking sound. James McOwen looked out his window and saw something the size of an eagle hopping along a path by a canal behind his house. The amazingly named Thack Cousins saw something running down the street near the Woodbury Hotel in New Jersey. Dogs barked, trash cans were turned over, the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin ran a drawing of the monster based on the eyewitness accounts. It stands on two spindly legs that end in hooved feet with horseshoes, then has a skinny horse body, a short giraffe neck, and a horse's head. Also, bat wings. Finally, things arrived at such a fevered pitch, and panic was so widespread in the area, that on January 23rd an armed gang of men marched off into the Pine Barrens to great fanfare. After they walked into the gloom of the forest... Shouts, screams, and gunfire could be heard echoing out of the darkness. After a few tense moments, the men returned with looks of horror on their faces. Behind them, they pulled a cart with a blanket-covered cage, which rattled and shook. The monster was taken to the nearby 9th and Arch Street Dime Museum in Philadelphia, which I assume was probably on the corner of 9th and Arch Street. The next day, an advertisement read in the Inquirer reading, Caught! And here! Alive! The Leeds Devil captured Friday after a terrific struggle. If you were willing to pay a small fee, which again, based on the name of the museum, I assume was probably a dime, you could take a look at the creature, and thousands did. There were lineups around the block. And from the reports of witnesses, if you paid your admission, you got your money's worth, because when the cover was pulled off the cage, you would see a monstrosity. The beast stood on two legs and a tail, was the size of a small person, had a head that resembled a horse or a deer, had muscled arms, and floppy wings. 
Now, all of what I have just said is accurate and really happened. However, let's go back in time a few years to look at these events from a different perspective. In 1905, the Trenton Times writer Almanus Alba, because again, people had old-timey names back then, had written a, a bit of a piece on the Leeds Devil describing it as resembling a monkey with wings and retelling the tale of Mother Leeds giving birth to a demon. One person who likely read that article was a PR man named Norman Jeffries, because he developed an idea. After the footprints started showing up a few years later, Jeffries approached Charles Brandenburg, the owner of the 9th and Arch Street Museum, with a plan. Jeffries then started feeding made-up newspaper stories about the Jersey Devil to local papers, who were looking for the early 20th century version of clickbait so that more people would buy their papers. However, one of the editors that Jeffries had approached had refused to run the made-up stories and confronted Jeffries, telling him that he knew the entire thing was a hoax and that Jeffries should come clean. Instead, Brandenburg and Jeffries got in touch with an animal exhibitor in Buffalo in New York, who then sent the men a live kangaroo, at which point the poor animal had wings attached to it. A few men were hired, including a Ringling Brothers clown named George Hartzell, and they staged a capture of the creature in the forest, which was then put on display. The hoax only lasted a few weeks before people got wise to what had been done. When he died in 1933, Jeffrey's New York Times obituary read, His feature stunt was press-agenting the reputed appearance in South Jersey communities of the Jersey Devil, a grotesque creature of his imagination. He capped his efforts with the announcement that the devil had been captured and would be exhibited at his museum. Thousands crowded to view the phenomenon, which was a disguised kangaroo. Of course, none of this means that the New Jersey Devil does not exist. However, until better evidence can be supplied to support its existence, it seems far more likely that the devil came to be through a combination of indigenous spirituality, filtered through the lens of the colonizing English, added to by the pamphlet wars between the Leeds family and the Quakers and Benjamin Franklin, and finally taken advantage of by a 20th century con man. The eyewitness testimony of strange noises or missing chickens or overturned garbage can be explained as the nighttime activities of far less demonic creatures such as owls, raccoons, skunks, and cranes. The footprints in the snow are suspicious in that they clearly showed the imprints of horseshoes, which should have led people to ask, wait, how did the Jersey Devil get horseshoes on its feet? Those are clearly man-made. Like most monster stories, this one tells us much more about ourselves than it does about anything else. And, like the other cryptid episodes we've done, we have made a commemorative postcard. To see it, sign up for our Instagram account at theuncoverup, one word. The first ten people to leave us a comment under the pic get a free copy of the postcard. And the first person from Wayne, New Jersey who leaves a comment will also receive the five-inch tall plastic figurine we used in the photo shoot. In the meantime, thanks for listening, and I hope that you are all staying safe and healthy in these very strange times. Mm-hmm.